From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On this show, an exclusive interview with the father and brother of Julian Assange, the imprisoned founder and editor of WikiLeaks. The attack on Julian is an attack on journalists and publishers everywhere in the West. It's in all of our self-interest to ensure that we can continue to read and discuss amongst ourselves freely information which allows us to make really good decisions for our families and for ourselves. Historian Gerald Horn has a take on the new federal holiday, Juneteenth, and journalist Deneen Brown gives an update on the Tulsa massacre investigation and is featured in a new documentary. Now, as we speak, they've found it as many as 28 coffins in that mass grave. They went back into that grave on June 1st, 2021, which was the 100th anniversary of this horrible massacre. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for June 18th, 2021. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, this week, President Biden made news with his trip to the meeting of G7 countries, all of which France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, United States, and Canada became wealthy as a result of colonization and or enslaved forced labor. Yet this group endorsed Biden's so-called Build Back Better global plan to counter the economic rise of China, which these countries charge with no real evidence of engaging in forced labor. Meanwhile, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is really a military alliance of some of these same former colonizers, also met this week and also put China and maybe even Russia in the crosshairs. James Bradley, author of several bestsellers focused on U.S. policy in Asia, told our friends at the Institute for Public Accuracy here in D.C. that, quote, we've seen Biden ratchet up the anti-Chinese rhetoric and it is incredibly dangerous. Now we're seeing NATO being used toward those ends. There's a great deal of propaganda that depicts China as this great threat, and that taps into a long history of anti-Chinese sentiment and misinformation, end quote. And perhaps the most remarkable thing to come from Biden's summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin was Biden's total lack of self-awareness or even awareness of history when he seemed oblivious of the U.S. interfering in at least 81 elections of other countries between the years 1946 and 2000. Let's get this straight. How would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world as interfering with the elections directly of other countries? And everybody knew it. But everyone does know it. And to make matters even worse, these dozens of U.S. interferences don't factor in the last 20 years and don't include U.S.-led coups or assassinations. Here in the United States, there was other international news of vital importance about distributing information and facts. 
Thomas O'Rourke was on the ground. The father and brother of imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange stopped in D.C. on June 13th as part of their hashtag Home Run for Julian U.S. tour to meet with activists, press, and policymakers to raise awareness of the importance of protecting whistleblowers, journalists, and publishers during a panel discussion at a busboys and poets restaurant in Northwest D.C., John and Gabriel Shipton were joined by former presidential candidate Marianne Williamson, Bill of Rights advocate Chip Gibbons, and via video Intercept reporter Ryan Grimm. John and Gabriel Shipton called on the U.S. government to drop its prosecution and finally let Julian come home. Julian's father, John Shipton, spoke eloquently in defense of his claim that he and son Gabriel are touring the U.S. in defense of the First Amendment. The revelations that Chelsea Manning supplied and were published in searchable form by WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, they demonstrate to us two things. One is that it's really important, vital to life and vital to civilization, to know what your government's doing, what's cooking in their offices, what are they discussing, what are they putting together, and why are they putting it together. The tour will cover cities across America and wraps up with an event back here in D.C. on June 30th. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. There's more information about this U.S. tour for Julian Assange at assangedefense.org. Our exclusive interview with his father and brother is after headlines. Also on the subject of free speech and information, more progressives are rallying to the defense of Representative Ilhan Omar for asking perfectly legitimate questions of Secretary of State Antony Blinken on June 7th about the United States, Israel, the Taliban, and Hamas all being investigated by the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes. Though the attempts to censure her for telling the truth are weak, they do keep the story of the Palestinian struggle for liberation in the news. This week, Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of the apartheid state for the past 12 years was ousted by Naftali Bennett, who is even more right-wing than Netanyahu. On Wednesday, June 15th, Israel bombed Gaza after it said fire balloons were floated into Israel, igniting fires. And far-right Israeli nationalists marched through Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem in an annual Israel Flag Day, with some shouting slogans such as Death to Arabs and May Your Village Burn. Juneteenth, which commemorates military defeat of the final slaveholding states in the United States, was signed into law as a federal holiday on Thursday. And hearing the news, I was drawn to recall the conversation we had on this show in 2015 with the late historian Harry Jones, who worked at the African American Civil War Museum here in D.C., Harry hammered home the point that the Emancipation Proclamation signed by President Abraham Lincoln had to be fought for and that African-American soldiers fighting for their own freedom were pivotal to that victory, including that final victory in Texas. And now I'm joined by on the grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horan, 
who has some new perspectives on Juneteenth that he wants to share. First of all, let me apologize because it'll be in a forthcoming book that should have been published by now, but for the pandemic and lockdown. And secondly, I'll be elaborating on this on your sister station, WBAI, on Juneteenth 2021. Check your local listings. But let me first of all congratulate Congress for passing this bill, and particularly entitling it Juneteenth Independence, which is a nod to the 1619 Project, which suggested accurately that uh, 1776 did not lead to abolition of slavery. It led to an exponential increase in enslavement of Africans, contrary to the false propaganda put out on a regular basis by some of our most eminent, quote unquote, liberal historians. I think it's fair to say that January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln uh, did not apply in Texas or in most of the states of the seceding slave-owning Confederate states of America. And in fact, the kernel and nugget of what I'm talking about today is that the Confederates planned to continue slavery in Texas. That was why when General Granger showed up in Galveston, Texas, a major slave port on June 19, 1865, coincidentally enough, he was accompanied by 75,000 so-called colored troops who were there because, recall that there's another holiday in the mix, which is Cinco de Mayo, a Mexican and Mexican-American holiday, which commemorates a Mexican victory over France, which had seized Mexico during the height of the U.S. Civil War, and French-backed Mexico was quite close to the Confederates. And indeed, the idea was not only to continue slavery in Texas, but for Texas to rejoin French-backed Mexico. Recall that Texas had seceded from abolitionist Mexico in 1836 because the president of African descent, Vicente Guerrero, in Mexico City had abolished slavery in 1829, and Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin weren't having it. So they set up a slave owner's republic that was then forced to join the Union in 1845 due to pressure from abolitionist Haiti and abolitionist London. So you need to realize that what happens post-June 19th is that the Negro troops, as they were then called, engaged in a hammer and anvil maneuver in conjunction with progressive Mexican forces to squeeze the French-backed forces in Mexico. Actually, Juneteenth is a stirring story of black-brown unity as opposed to this tired white savior narrative as represented by General Granger. And that's just a kernel and a nugget of a story that will be in a book that will be out relatively soon and on WBAI on Juneteenth, 2021. Okay. I'm glad that you were able to give us a taste of this very complex and profound story. I hope that all of our listeners will correct everybody at the Juneteenth cookout (laughs) when they have their story about it, and we can have the real story. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you.
Now, after being pressured by civil rights groups, including the Poor People's Campaign that marched in Charleston, West Virginia on Monday, June 14th, Senator Joe Manchin is reportedly proposing compromise voting rights legislation that includes some, but not all of the elements of the For the People Act, which he has opposed. There is also a bipartisan agreement in the Senate for Infrastructure that climate activists say does not meet what is required to address the crisis and create good jobs that Biden promised to them on the campaign trail. A separate plan is being developed for a $6 trillion budget that will include infrastructure and could be approved through the budget reconciliation process, which does not require 10 Republicans to ensure passage in the Senate. And finally, in culture and media, Juneteenth activities for June 19th in the DMV, the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia, include an inaugural Juneteenth Day of Service by the National Black United Front. And more information about that is posted on Facebook. The Juneteenth 2021 celebration annual date at the range, sponsored by the Associated Gun Clubs of Baltimore Marriottsville, is happening. And that's also posted on Facebook. And Juneteenth in Bethesda, Maryland is being sponsored by the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition in the midst of what they say is renewed desecration of the African burial ground in Bethesda that they have been fighting to save. The program will be held at the Macedonia Baptist Church on River Road in Bethesda. For more information, call 240 731-9577. On the small screen, one of several documentaries marking the centennial of the Tulsa massacre is Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, premiering Friday, June 18th at 9 p.m. on National Geographic. And it will also stream on Hulu. Rise Again features Washington Post reporter Deneen Brown, who we spoke to last October We will speak to Deneen Brown later in the show about the documentary and about the latest in the Tulsa investigation. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And listeners know that On the Ground continues to cover the case of Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder and publisher who has been in prison for more than a year, often in solitary confinement in the maximum security Belmarsh prison in London, where he has been on trial facing extradition to the United States. Now, even though the 49-year-old publisher is not an American citizen, he is facing charges under the U.S. law, the 1917 Espionage Act, 
for releasing documentation of U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. And though Judge Vanessa Baritza ruled in January that Assange should not be extradited to the U.S., not because of the freedom of press issues, but because of the poor conditions of U.S. prisons, the Trump administration actually indicated that they would appeal her decision. Since then, human rights defenders, journalists, and freedom of the press activists all over the world are calling on the Biden administration to drop the appeal and not set the dangerous precedent of, for the first time, prosecuting a publisher under the Espionage Act in defiance of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Joining, or I should say leading, that international movement for Julian Assange are his father and brother, John Shipton and Gabriel Shipton, who are in the middle of a U.S. tour that they have dubbed the Home Run Tour for Julian. And on Sunday, June 13th, they made their first of what will be two stops here in the nation's capital at a packed Busboys and Poets restaurant in Northwest D.C. On the ground was on hand to report at Busboys. And now I'm joined by Julian Assange's father, John Shipton, and his brother, Gabriel Shipton as they continue their tour across the United States. Welcome to On the Ground, John and Gabriel. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Thanks, Esther. It's good to be here. I, I think that many supporters of WikiLeaks and Julian are very concerned, first of all, about his health, especially after Nils Melser, the UN Rapporteur for Human Rights, already described Julian's conditions of imprisonment as torture and there have been ongoing reports about his deteriorating condition. So first, what is the last you were able to speak to him or speak to anyone who has spoken to Julian recently? The last time I, I saw Julian in October last year. So, uh, and since then, he hasn't been able to have, you know, any in-person visits, you know, from his family or from his legal representatives. So, you know, over that period, the prison has been in a total sort of lockdown with no visitors. So he hasn't had any in-person visits since I saw him in October. You know, in Niels Melzer's report, you know, they found that Julian was suffering the effects of this long-term psychological torture. So, uh, you know, that's sort of clear to us when we, you know, when I you know, go and see him over the years, this, this whole sort of saga that's been going on has, has taken its toll on this man. Yes. And that was Gabriel speaking. John, did you want to add anything? Y yes. Uh, um, so the prison, uh, as Gabriel just mentioned, is infested with COVID-19 among the staff and the prisoners. As a consequence, they have a, a permanent lockdown until they manage to find a way to lift this disease from the prison. They did, in the early days, about a year ago, of the COVID uh, pandemic have a, what they called a release of prisoners, of 4,000 prisoners back into the population uh, as they were of prisoners on remand and no danger to uh, anybody, no danger to society. They were just on remand, uh, in other words, innocent. Julian, though, is on remand, is innocent, has been by the judge declared uh, non-extraditable, refused the extradition, Julian <laughs> it remains in prison for, for reasons we, we can't really understand. He is allowed 
a 10-minute phone call. And so each day, if we're fortunate, we get a phone call. But they're always guillotined at 10 minutes, Esther. Now here, Julian's imprisonment is rightfully compared to the imprisonment of Chelsea Manning, the forced exile of Edward Snowden, and jailing of other whistleblowers such as former CIA officers Jeffrey Sterling and John Kiriakou, or even NSA contractor Reality Winner, who was just released from prison. But here in the United States, uh, his persecution is also linked, I think, to the decades-old propaganda machine that suppresses inconvenient facts, like, for example, about the barbarism of slavery, Jim Crow, the U.S. slaughter of so many millions of people around the globe through the U.S. so-called foreign policy. And so in this age of the internet, you know, where Julian Assange and WikiLeaks is able to reach a global audience, the ability of the U.S. government and its corporate controlled media to completely own narratives, suppress narratives, has decreased more and more. But it seems that even as corporate media is dying, it's determined to take down the truth with it. So aside from the you know collaboration that's happening in the UK, you know how does uh, this kind of U.S. hegemony over media and narrative impacting coverage and coverage of this case look like? What does that look like to you? You know, her ruling was more than I don't know if it's three months ago or five months ago. Well, uh, as to the ruling, it is quite bizarre. It just uh, only addressed uh, Julian's well-being. It didn't address the substantive issues which uh, the defence covered, in particular the uh, the right of the public to know, and uh, secondly, that the treaty itself forbids extradition for political purposes. So those items were ignored by the judge and, and those substantive issues, uh, aside from getting the important one, of course, of getting Julian free and home to his family, those substantive issues are of public concern worldwide that a judge just simply says, oh, yes, the United States Department of Justice has got it all right, but Julian's too ill to travel. It's just absurd, Esther, and the actions of uh, and concerns of people as we move around the United States and the world actively focus on those, the substantive issues of public right to know, the participation in democracy, the participation in formulating understanding of government policy and their ability to resist or assist government policy where it's appropriate. So that, yeah. Those issues are very much uh, alive in people's minds. And, uh, uh, but Gabriel, you were... before you jump yeah. in, I wanted to add to that question. Is there any feedback about the timeline for the U.S.? I mean, can the U.S. just stall forever in trying to put forth this appeal? Do they have a, a deadline? And, you know, as one detractor said online, are they just trying to have, you know, Julian rot in prison? You know, do they have any type of deadline to either make an appeal or to drop it? Well, I think, you know, we were expecting to hear back from the High Court last week, but that sort of hasn't happened. So for us, this is just another another element of the punishment by process. So Julian was, uh, you know, won his case six months ago, and we still don't know whether, uh, whether or when an appeal will be heard in the High Court in the UK. So it's just this sort of 
not knowing is really part of this sort of torture that Niels Melser has identified, you know, not knowing when this could end, this sort of ongoing nature that, that it's never ending. I mean, normal prisoners, you know, they have a sentence and they can plan for their sentence when it's over. But in Julian's case, there's just no knowing of when it could potentially end. Right. Well, I know it's overused, and, but that's because it, it works. But corporate media in the United States kind of is George Orwell's Ministry of Truth, you know, where lies are truth and truth are lies. And this is part of the trap in which, you know, Julian Assange is caught. So an important part in the ministry right now is that you must swear in corporate media or in Democratic Party controlled municipalities like Washington, D.C., uh, the truth that you have to swear to is that Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump in 2016, in part because of these evidence-free charges of Russian collusion with Trump or WikiLeaks publishing of Democratic Party emails that revealed how the party was operating to secure the win for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primaries. And so even though the U.S. government said the email were hacked by Russian intelligence officers and given to WikiLeaks, Julian said that Russia was not the source of the documents. And as you know, former technical director of the NSA, William Binney, has proven that the material could not have been hacked, but was instead downloaded locally, like on a flash drive or some other type of uh, equipment. So in addition, the FBI never gained access to the computers in question. And the company CrowdStrike, contracted by the DNC, testified to Congress that they never even had proof of hacking. So on your tour here in America, I mean, this is still a very fraught political landscape because that first election lie in 2016 has given way to another election lie in, in 2020. The land is very divided politically. So, you know, what are you encountering out here trying to tell the story of Julian Assange, a publisher, a journalist, just trying to tell the truth to the American people? Yeah, I think despite all that stuff that you went over, you know, what we're seeing now is these establishment organizations such as the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times, their executive editors coming out and saying that this case, you know, is so dangerous for press freedoms. You know, we're seeing you know, there's a group of 24 press freedom and human rights groups, the, all the largest groups in the US, Amnesty International, ACLU, Human Rights Watch, you know, e e even the ones that are sort of uh, more conservative are coming out and saying that this case is a dangerous precedent for press freedoms. It's the first time an Espionage Act prosecution has been used against a publisher. So that, that all these establishments, institutions are all identifying this case as a real problem. So I think that's sort of what we're seeing here in this country. We're also seeing quite a lot of support among the people and, and it's through your work and, you know, the sort of alternative media that the pressure is applied. And so I think that's really important is that these radio shows keep going, that people come out to these events, um, they get together and continues to support and really, you know, make it known that this prosecution is a danger to, to press freedoms and a danger to everybody's democratic rights. Uh, and I know we're running short of time now, but I know that he won uh, an important award, the Sacco and Vanzetti Award. He was uh, awarded that uh, during your stop in New York. And uh, Chris Hedges gave remarks there that are very important. But winding up, I mean, I know that Julian Assange's birthday is coming up on July 3rd. And... I imagine that might be a date to uh, have uh, 
special recognition for him also. Uh, so as we close, what, what do you, what would you like to say to our audience, which is really around the country and around the world about Julian Assange's case and what you want them to remember? In, in the first place, I want to say thanks for their support. It's only through their support that we've managed to raise the profile of this case to the extent where it's being considered by the Attorney General, uh, Merrick Garland, and that phenomenon that Gabrielle explained of 24 major institutions signing a letter and having that put in in the uh, New York Times, that this is of profound concern to them, the prosecution of Julian. Secondly, uh, and lastly, the institutional momentum towards prosecution is now being overwhelmed by the upwelling of support worldwide uh, for Julian and for the realisation of the self-interest, you know, it's in all of our self-interest to ensure that we can continue to read and discuss amongst ourselves freely information which allows us to make really good decisions for our families and for ourselves. Vital, just simply vital. Okay. Well, that was John Shipton, father of Julian Assange, and I've been speaking to him and Julian Assange's brother, Gabriel Shipton. Thank you so much uh, to both of you for joining me today, and uh, uh, maybe we will um, see you again when you return to D.C. before on the at the end of your trip. Yeah, that'd be great, Esther. Thanks so much for your for your great questions the other night at the event. Um, you know, it was good, great to hear your voice there. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Esther. See you again. Okay. Gonna see my sweet honey baby. Gonna break this chain off the run. I'm gonna lay down somewhere shady Lord, I sure am hard in the sun Hold it right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it Been working and working Working and slaving And working and working But a steam So terribly far to Voting rights is not an issue only of race. And I want to challenge all of us in this country. The, re- the Republicans actually want a black-white fight. That's all they, they want to make folk think that's all it is. But voting rights is as much an issue for my poor white brothers in the hollers of West Virginia as it is for my brothers that are black in the hood, as it is for my indigenous native brothers on the reservation, as it is for my Latino brothers and my Asian brothers and sisters. 
And especially here. Which side are you on, Joe Manchin? Because in, in West Virginia, 700,000 people are poor and low wealth. Which side are you on? In West Virginia, 355,000 people make less than $15 an hour. Which side are you on, Joe Manchin? In West Virginia, 46.7% of the census tracts can't even afford water. Which side are you on, Joe Manchin? Because West Virginia needs free and unabridged voting. West Virginia needs a $15 living wage. West Virginia needs health care for everybody. West Virginia needs infrastructure. In fact, West Virginia needs a real senator that doesn't just talk about it. That was the Reverend William Barber speaking at the Poor People's Campaign March on Mansion in Charleston, West Virginia on June 14, 2021. The march was targeting West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin for his opposition to voting rights legislation in Congress and his opposition to legislation that the Poor People's Campaign says is vital to supporting poor and low wealth people in this country, including increasing the minimum wage, an infrastructure bill that creates good jobs, well-paying jobs, and police accountability, police reform legislation. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, when we last spoke to Denine Brown on the show during October 2020, she was on the ground in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as the first excavations began that revealed a mass grave as researchers began their search for just some of the at least 300 Black people believed to have been murdered during the Tulsa massacre 100 years ago in May of 1921. As we go to broadcast June 18th, she is the centerpiece of a, a new documentary that's going to premiere on the National Geographic channel called Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. And she is here to talk to us about that documentary and how that connects to the reporting that she's done on the ground in Tulsa. Welcome back to the show, Deneen. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Esther. Well, the documentary is, wow, is all I can say, because it really goes beyond just talking about Tulsa, which is horrific enough, to really connect to that whole period in the early part of the last century when Black people were victimized by these types of massacres all over the country. And of course, We've been talking about the report put out by the Equal Justice Initiative that laid out the, the terror in the post-Reconstruction period, uh, particularly in the South. So the period that you're talking about after Black troops returned from fighting in World War I is just kind of like an extension of that, it seems. Let's uh, play from the trailer for Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. 
They got word that trouble was coming. The white folks are killing the color. Barbaric violence was committed against black people across this country. Kerosene was dropped from an airplane. Why did nobody ever teach us this? Because they didn't want you to know. When it was an opportunity to wipe out a community, they took it. I cannot imagine that there are mass graves somewhere in our community and we didn't try to find them. They're buried somewhere. And the question is where? We have encountered human remains. It was like they had found people who had been disappeared by history. The earth had unleashed the truth. We view this as a murder investigation. I'm gonna raise my voice. Gonna Some people say that city voice. officials orchestrated a cover-up. It wasn't a movie. It wasn't a chapter in a book. It happened to real people. They burned the whole town down. But it will rise again. Okay, so that's the trailer for Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. And it features my guest, Deneen Brown. She's a reporter at the Washington Post and also a professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. So let's give an update on where we left off when we last spoke. And uh, this excavation began and they were going to examine these remains to see if these indeed were victims of the massacre. Yes. So the city of Tulsa began searching for mass graves in October of 2019 using ground penetrating radar. They announced in December, 2019, that they had found anomalies that were consistent with mass graves, which are radar images beneath the ground. They began actually physically excavating for these mass graves, again, that may be connected to the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. They excavated in July, 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic but they didn't find any human remains in July. They expanded that search in Oakland Cemetery. It's a city-owned cemetery in Tulsa. They expanded that search and they began physically excavating in October of 2020. And that's when they found a mass grave that had at least 12 coffins in it. Someone had dug stairs into the wall of that mass grave, which gave clues to some of the archaeologists that there might be more coffins in that mass grave. Now, as we speak, they've found it as many as 28 coffins in that mass grave. They went back into that grave on June 1st, 2021, which was the 100th anniversary of this horrible massacre, and began expanding their archaeological search in that mass grave in Oakland Cemetery. And again, they've discovered as many as 28 coffins. And so what's really interesting, Esther, is that they've been taking the remains very carefully out of this mass grave, but they will only allow the Black descendants of these massacre victims to carry those remains 
they place the remains in, in boxes that look very much like coffins. They've draped a black flag over these coffins. And then six people, black people, walk, carry the box, very much like pallbearers. They're carrying the boxes of these remains across the cemetery to a lab where a forensic anthropologist, Phoebe Stubblefield, is going to examine these remains for any signs of trauma, such as burning or bullet fragments that would connect the remains directly to the massacre. Wow. So when you said that they are putting these remains in boxes like coffins, are some of the remains not in coffins already in the mass grave? So the coffins have deteriorated in the mass graves. They were wooden coffins. So they're basically fragments of coffins. Over time, they've just really worn down. So there might be a nail here or there. So it's, yeah, it's fragments of coffins. It's not fully intact coffins that they discovered in the mass grave. And I assume that the the forensic researcher hasn't given any type of report yet. Right, right, right. I'm sitting on pins and needles right now. I'm checking with my sources in Tulsa like every day to uh, report on that. If Phoebe Stubblefield, Dr. Phoebe Stubblefield, finds any trauma, she's an expert in this area. She's also really interesting. She's a descendant of a massacre victim. So she's a Black uh, forensic anthropologist who works out of the University of Florida. She's been leading the forensic anthropology um, science in this investigation. And no, she hasn't announced yet whether she has found any signs of trauma, but she's a a world expert in this field and uh, she knows what she's looking for. Now, I mentioned the documentary that's going to air beginning on uh, June 18th, Rise Again, Tulsa in the Red Summer. And throughout the documentary, you are going around the country interviewing descendants of these types of massacres, not only in Tulsa. And when I first saw your articles in the Washington Post about Tulsa, I felt like I know about that. And, you know, I wonder why we're talking about it if nothing new is happening. You know, I was kind of thinking that. But then I realized that through your reporting, you were making something happen in a way. You know what I mean? You were bringing uh, the story to the attention of not only in people in Tulsa, but through the Washington Post, you know, just around the country and around the world. And it, as it happens, you know, it really gathered steam because of the uprising against racism last year, right? And people began to make these links between not only police brutality, police murder of men like George Floyd, but how that horrible murder was connected to this long history of murder of Black people, and often with impunity by the police and what we know uh, as the, the white mob. So I guess wondering what you've learned if you learn anything new through this process of not only t- talking about Tulsa or reporting on Tulsa, but on these other massacres. Well, you're right, Esther. Many people have written about the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. There was a Tulsa race riot commission. They called it a riot back then. Tulsa race riot commission report that was released in 2001. 
There have been lawsuits filed uh, by survivors for reparations, um, one filed in the early 2000s by the famous lawyer and law professor Charles Ogletree. So yes, there is a great deal of information out there about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Now, what I did as a reporter for the Washington Post in 2018, I was visiting my father who lives in Tulsa. I like to tell people, my people are from Oklahoma. I was born in Oklahoma. My great uh, grandmother lived in Tulsa. My grandmother was born in Boley, which is an all black town, uh, 60 miles from Tulsa. And my dad uh, lives in Tulsa now, as I said before, he built his church there. So I was visiting my dad in 2018 when we were having lunch on Black Wall Street at a soul food cafe. And I look around and I notice all these signs of gentrification. There's a minor league <laughs> baseball stadium, a yoga studio, and a, a luxury apartment complex. It hit me because I knew that this was sacred ground. I knew that a horrible massacre had occurred on Black Wall Street in Greenwood in Tulsa, and yet they were developing this <laughs> ground in Tulsa. And there seemed to be a lack of reverence for this massacre site. So I just wanted to explain how I started working on the story to answer your question. So I'm mm -hmm. having lunch with my dad at the Soul Food Cafe. Look around. I see gentrification on Black Wall Street. I fly back to D.C., talk to my editor, and she says that's a great story. And then I go back to Tulsa to do the real reporting. Now, the first story that I wrote was about that gentrification, but it also raised questions about this Tulsa Race Riot Commission report that came out in 2001. That report concluded that the survivors and descendants of, of the massacre survivors should be paid reparations. It was a state report. It also concluded that the state and city should physically dig for mass graves that had been found by ground penetrating radar in 1998 and 1999. So my story in the Washington Post raised those questions. What happened to this investigation? Why was it closed? You know, what's happening in Tulsa? And after the story runs on the front page in September 2018, the day after that, there's a community meeting in Tulsa. And Reverend Turner, who's pastor of Vernon AME Church, holds up my story as the mayor is talking about plans for development in Greenwood. And Reverend Turner says, you wouldn't have this land had there not been a massacre. What are you going to do about it? And that's when Mayor G.T. Bynum announced that he would reopen the search for mass graves. So that's why it became a story that the mayor reopened a search for mass graves. And I've continued to follow the story in increments as the city began searching again with ground updated ground penetrating radar. And at each step, I would fly back to Tulsa to report the story in increments. Deneen, in the time we have left, I, I can't help but think about how this history being told about these massacres seems to be this force kind of countering this wave of effort around the country to basically suppress the history, to suppress the 1619 project uh, from the New York Times, to I think even in Oklahoma, to have the governor say that it may be divisive for people to be taught about this massacre, to have a law passed in states like Oklahoma 
that make it illegal for teachers to talk about slavery as an important origin story for this country, as opposed to some of the more uh, conventional ideas we're taught about, you know, founded for freedom and all of that. So I, I wonder, as you continue this type of research and reveal more of this history, what do you think about this almost counter move to to suppress this type of information? Okay, so uh, that's a great question. And what I'm going to say is, as the ancestors say, you can't suppress the truth. The truth will find a light, right? So yes, there is a movement afoot. Even this week, they passed a law creating Juneteenth as a holiday. But at the same time, they're passing laws to restrict voting rights. They're not heeding calls by Black descendants of enslaved Black people for reparations. And they've passed laws to ban teaching the truth of racist history in this country. And you're right, Governor Stitt in Oklahoma recently signed a bill that prohibited teachers from teaching lessons that make students feel uncomfortable. Yeah, so there's an onslaught. Uh, Again, it's another backlash, very similar to what happened around the turn of the century during the Jim Crow period, which, as you know, coincides with these massacres that occurred during Red Summer and that led to Tulsa. I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners know that Red Summer was a reign of terror that engulfed at least 26 cities, including Washington, D.C., Chicago, Omaha, and in Elaine, Arkansas, which was maybe one of the worst racial terror massacres in U.S. history. In Elaine, Arkansas, some historians believe as many as 800 Black people were killed during that massacre that began in September 1919 when uh, Black sharecroppers tried to organize to form a union to get higher prices for their cotton. And they're meeting one night in a little white church uh, down a country road in Arkansas, which is where I actually traveled there for this film. A car of white men drive up outside the church and start shooting into the church. As many as 80 Black people inside the church were killed. And uh, uh, two Black veterans shot out. As you know, during this period, Black veterans who had just returned from World War I were fighting back to defend their communities and their families. So at, at this church in Hoopspur, Arkansas, they sh- shoot out one white man is killed. And then again, all hell breaks loose. Because they the one out- white man is killed. Yes. And so mm-hmm. they send out a call to white people, white people descended on Elaine, Arkansas, from as far away as Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, thousands of white people then descended on Elaine, Arkansas, and they began hunting black people. So a lot of people don't know that the governor, the then governor, Governor Broff of Arkansas participated in this hunt uh, to shoot black people in Arkansas. He got in his car in uh, Little Rock and drove the two and a half hours to Lane, Arkansas. And he, there are photos of him participating in this hunt. So what's interesting, um, Esther, is that in Elaine, Arkansas, it's, um, the massacre is different from some other sites during Red Summer and also different from Tulsa because in Elaine, uh, this is a, a rural area, the Black people lived acres apart. And so the white mobs actually had to walk for acres 
to hunt black people, many of whom were hiding in the thickets near the Mississippi River. The governor also called in the National Guard. And some of these black people, when they saw the soldiers show up, they came out of their hiding places thinking that the soldiers were there to help them. And the soldiers actually opened fire on black people in Arkansas. This is an, uh, it's just a ma- an amazing story that was whitewashed out of history. Another interesting part of this Elaine Arkansas um, massacre story is that one of the black men who was arrested and put on death row wrote a letter to Ida B. Wells, as you know, who was an anti-lynching crusader and said, can you please come help us? I should back up and say that after the massacre ended in October 1919 in Elaine, uh, 285 black people were arrested, 122 were charged. No white attackers were arrested or prosecuted, but 12 black men were sentenced to death. And Ida B. Wells travels to Arkansas, to Helena, Arkansas, which is not far from Elaine. She disguises herself as an old woman. She goes into the jail and she takes down their testimony of all that they lost and the fact that they had been tortured, uh, that these white people had strapped them in electric chairs, placed like some chemical over their nose to give them a sense of drowning. They beat them to nearly an inch of, of their lives to, to elicit false uh, confessions from them, saying that they started an insurrection. So yeah, this Elaine massacre is part of this film. You know, as a reporter on the film, I travel to Arkansas and I interview descendants of this massacre who are still trying to fight for justice, trying to get the state to investigate, trying to get the state to search for mass graves, Uh, trying to get the state to pay any reparations. So this film actually expands Tulsa and looks at Red Summer, which I argue sets a stage for Tulsa. Well, I think that that's a perfect point to leave our conversation this time. I salute your reporting and I'm proud of you as a fellow reporter here in Washington, D.C., who I've worked with. And so I want to remind everyone that the documentary is called Rise Again, uh, Tulsa and the Red Summer. It's uh, premiering on the Net Geo channel on June 18th, and uh, it will repeat there. But I think it also will be on Hulu, and uh, you can find out more information on uh, the Net Geo website also. But I've been speaking with Deneen Brown, uh, a reporter at the Washington Post, also professor at the University of Maryland. Thank you for joining me today again, Deneen. Thank you so much. It was great to be here and thank you to your listeners. And that's it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Gerald Horn and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to today's show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can also like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Ivarum, is on all your podcast platforms. The music we played this hour included Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington, A Free Palestine by Joe Dean and Wahid Nassan, The Work Song by Nina Simone, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.
This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.